The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Let's pray together. So, Father, we are grateful for this text that gives us hope. I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would speak to us through the words of your Son and that you'd speak into our hearts and our lives hope. Show us the resurrected Christ clearly and let us see, let us see what he does in us, through us, for your glory. Father, let us see what Peter saw on that beach. This is our prayer. This is what we ask. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and by your spirit. Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to the final chapter of John's gospel. John chapter 21. If you were here last week, you might actually kind of be wondering to yourself why this gospel even has a chapter 21. We've been journeying through the gospel of John, and by the time you get to the end of chapter 20, it definitely feels like the gospel has concluded. I mean, everything's kind of wrapped up rather nicely. Jesus is risen from the dead, and his resurrection has reversed everything. That's what the title of last week's message was, Resurrection Reversals. And we saw the resurrected Christ, we saw him reverse everything. We saw him appear to his disciples, and he reversed their fear and their doubt. He did so by announcing to them peace, promising them the power of the Holy Spirit, by commissioning them with a purpose to proclaim free forgiveness of sins in him. They have a new life in his name. Like, what is there left to tell in this story? I mean, even from our perspective, as readers, it feels like everything is summed up. Hasn't John said everything that he needs to say to us? The final verses of chapter 20 definitely make it feel that way. Look back at verses 30 and 31 of John 20. John, our author, says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. In other words, this book is coming to a close. I've written everything I need to write, right? Right. They're not written in this book, but these, the ones that I have written, they are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John looks directly at us, the readers, and he says, I have written all of this so that you would believe in Jesus and have life. I've written it all so that his resurrection would reverse everything for you just like it did for his first disciples. I've written so that you might have peace with God, so that you would be empowered by his Holy Spirit, so that you would be commissioned by Christ to joyfully proclaim him. I have written so that you may have life in his name. That's how he ends verse 31, is it not? And that by believing you may have life in his name. That feels like a mic drop conclusion. What else are you going to add? And then comes chapter 21. Why? 
Why? It's because Jesus isn't done. He's he's got more to do. There are still some loose ends that need tying up. And John records these loose ends because they have everything to do with you. And everything to do with with me. And so the Gospel of John, it gets an epilogue. Epilogue is a word rooted in Greek. Epi means after. Logos means word. It's the afterword. If you read a novel and it has an epilogue, it's the afterword. It's after the climax of all the action. We're just going to tie up a couple of loose ends. And so the question is, what loose ends, what lingering loose ends are left in the Gospel of John? Or more accurately, who is the lingering loose end in the Gospel of John? And what does he have to do with you? The answer begins to unfold. John 21, verses 1 through 3 says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It's another name for the Sea of Galilee in the north. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out, they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So, some time has passed since Jesus' resurrection. We don't know exactly how much, but the disciples have left Jerusalem where they were for the Passover feast. That's all over. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is over. They've left and they've traveled back home, north, to the area of Galilee. And even once they get there, you get the sense that they don't know what to do. So they do the only thing they know. They go fishing. Many of Jesus' disciples had been professional fishermen before they left everything in order to follow Jesus. So rather than just sit around, seven of his disciples set out to fish. They need to eat after all. They need to feed themselves. They need to make a living. They need to make money somehow. So they go out at night. You would fish all night so that your fresh catch could be sold in the morning in the marketplace. And they do this. These seven disciples, they set out to fish off of the suggestion or the behest of one particular disciple, Peter. Immediately in this chapter, Peter is pushed to the forefront. And that's because Peter is the particular person with whom Christ has unfinished business. Peter is the lingering loose end. Why? Like, hasn't Peter experienced everything else the other disciples had experienced up to this point? Hasn't Peter seen Jesus risen from the dead? Hasn't he heard Christ announce peace and the promised power of the Spirit and commissioned them with a purpose? Hasn't he heard all that? Well, yes, he has. But I'm willing to bet that Peter, as he's heard all of that, I'm willing to bet he has been wondering, could that all really include me? Jesus announces, could that really be peace for me? Power, could that really be power that's going to flow through me? Commissioned him on a purpose. Can I really be involved in that? I bet Peter has been wondering if that could all include him because Peter still has what we might call a spiritual black eye. You ever had a black eye? Anybody had a black eye? My daughter, Talitha, she's got her first shiner. And she got it in a very stereotypical, stupid way. 
Um, she stood up on top of this chair that we have in our living room. It's just like a normal chair that you would have in your living room kind of thing. But she decided that she was going to get up on the arm of it and hold on to the back of it and leap off like a bird. And her feet slipped out from under her on the fabric. And so she went immediately parallel to the hardwood floor and dropped like a rock and decided to try and, you know, catch herself with her hands. And so she literally punched herself in the face between the floor and her face was her fist. And she's got a beautiful black eye still to this day. Because like, here's the thing, like that happened, you know, several days ago. But if you see my daughter this morning, you can still see the evidence. She still has this black eye. It's quite obvious her stupidity is worn on her face for everyone to see. Peter's got a bit of a spiritual black eye. How? Because if you remember back in John 13, when Jesus informed the disciples, one of you is going to betray me to my death, Peter not only said, nope, that's not going to be me, he said, I would die first. I will lay down my life for you, Jesus, before I let anybody bring harm to you. If we read what he says out of the Gospel of Mark, which the Gospel of Mark was actually most likely based on Peter's personal testimony. If we read what he says out of the Gospel of Mark, it gets even stronger than that. Mark 14, 29, Peter says it this way. Even though they all fall away, like all your other disciples, even if all of them abandon you, I will not. And yet he did. Jesus told Peter before the rooster announces the coming of the sun, you're going to have denied me three times. And that's exactly what we saw happen in John chapter 18. Peter failed. He, he denied Christ. And while the effects of that may be, or while that event may be a couple of chapters back, a couple of weeks back for Peter, he's still wearing the evidence of his spiritual stupidity on his faith. Everybody knows what Peter did, especially Peter. So, I, so I'm, I'm just willing to bet, this is my sanctified imagination, I pray, but I'm just willing to bet that when Jesus shows up to make his announcement to all the disciples, I'm risen from the dead, peace be with you, I'm just willing to bet that Peter pushed his way to the back. And when he says, peace, Peter thought, that's not for me. And when Jesus promised power, Peter thought, that's not for me. I'm too weak. And when Jesus commissioned his disciples, he thought, that can't include me. I've fallen too far. I can't be used for the glory of Christ. I don't know what else to do, so I'll do what I know. I'll go fishing. And I may be crazy, but I'm just, I'm just willing to to bet that Peter is not the only person that feels that way. I'm willing to bet that you do too. Like last week, as we saw Jesus announce peace, promise power, and give purpose to all of his followers, did you think, that's great, but it doesn't include me? I've, I've failed too much. I've gone too far. I'm not the kind of person Jesus is talking to. And you just slowly pushed your way to the, the back. I don't have the right gifts. I don't have the right personality type to, to proclaim Christ to the world. 
for the glory of his name? I can't do it. I've done too much wrong. I've failed too much. I can't be used for the glory of Christ. I've got good news for you. John 21 is about you. It's here for you. In John 21, Jesus is not going to have another generic conversation with all of his disciples about how he's brought peace for all of them and he's empowering all of them and he's sending them out on commission. No, he's going to stare Peter straight in the face. He says, Peter, I'm talking, I'm talking to, to you. He's going to have a conversation with Peter that will leave no room for Peter to, denou- to, to doubt that these words are for him. Jesus takes aim at his heart. And, and at the aim, through Peter, at the aim, he takes aim at your heart, at the aim of, of all of our hearts who feel guilt and shame. I would say to Peter, Peter, this is resurrection reversals part two. And it's about you. Last week as we talked about resurrection reversals, maybe you thought that doesn't include me. This is about you, Shades. You as an individual. That's why chapter 21 is here. I feel like Jesus is going to be saying to Peter throughout this chapter, you've seen my resurrection reverse the fear and the doubt of all of the other disciples. Now feel it reverse your guilt and shame for the glory of my name. Feel it reverse your guilt and shame for the glory. Oh, shades, through Peter, Christ is speaking to you. I know that because of verse 1. Look at it again. John 21 and verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed. Some of you may be using an NIV or another English version that says appeared. NIV is a perfectly good version, but the word appeared is not a good translation of phonoreo. The word that appears under that in Greek, phanoreo, excuse me. It means reveal. It's not about a magician trick of something popping out of thin air. It's about something right in front of you being shown to you for what it really is. Seeing it for how it truly is. After this, Jesus revealed himself, showed more of who he was as the resurrected Christ to his disciples. He revealed himself again to the disciples, plural, by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. I know this is for you because of that plural on disciples right there. And everything that we're about to see in chapter 21 and all that we're about to see through Peter, Christ is not just revealing something just to Peter. He's revealing it to all of his disciples. That's what verse 1 says. Because truth be told, I'm willing to bet that Peter was not the only one of them dealing with guilt and shame. They had all abandoned Christ. They had all probably doubted Jesus' words about peace and power and purpose for them. I think that's why in verse 3, when Peter says, I'm going fishing, they're all like, we'll go too. We don't know what to do either. And so Jesus speaks straight to all of their hearts and our hearts. We're included in that, disciples. Straight to their hearts, straight to our heart. And he does it through Peter because Peter was the disciple with the black eye. He was the disciple with, with the, the deepest failure. And so if Jesus can reverse everything for him, he can reverse everything for anyone, including us. This is resurrection reversals part two. It's got to do with you, Shades. I want us to see how 
Christ reverses Peter's life. So we can see how he reverses our life, your life. He can do it right now as you encounter him here in this text, in this moment. Let's see it together. Verse 4. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, you got to love Jesus' subtle sarcasm, right? At least that's how I read the text right there. Not fishermen. No, children, suckers, you ain't caught nothing. And he knows that, but he's going to make them say it. Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. I don't know how many of you fish. I fished a ton before I moved to Birmingham and had five children. Since then, not so much fishing. All right? But this is like number one way to annoy a fisherman. Talk to them on the water, find out they've caught nothing, and then tell them what they're doing wrong. But they're like, fine, whatever, retired. So they cast it. And they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, our author, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. John was the first one to recognize the resurrection at the empty tomb. He's the first one to recognize Jesus on this beach. It's true to his personality. The resurrected Christ is there in front of them, and he is revealing himself to the disciples, showing them something about himself, something that's true about him. He's revealing himself through this miracle, saying, it's me. He's doing that because for these disciples, this is a deja vu moment for them. They've seen something like this happen before. If you go to Luke chapter 5, the Gospel of Luke chapter 5, it talks about at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, when he is first calling his disciples to follow him, he encounters Peter and some of the other disciples on their job as fishermen, and something exactly like this happens. They'd been fishing all night. They hadn't caught anything. Jesus gives them instructions as to what to do, and the result is a miraculous catch. And in that moment, Peter realizes he's in the presence of the Lord. Luke 5.8 says, But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. The miracle revealed in whose presence he was. He sin is apart from me. I don't deserve to be in the presence of, of the living God. And now, in John 21, Jesus is doing the same thing, using a very similar miracle to reveal, to show to them that it's him. He's here. Same miracle reveals the same Lord, and John knows it. He says to Peter, it's the Lord. And this time, versus Luke 5, and this time, Peter reacts completely different. He doesn't want Jesus to depart. No, Peter like wraps himself up in what little clothes he's got and dives into the sea so he can get closer to Christ as fast as possible. Look back at verse 7. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work. He threw himself into the sea. That's a total Peter move. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the full net of fish behind, for they were not far from land, only about a hundred yards off. You got to love Peter's reaction. It's so true to his personality. He doesn't think. He just does. 
He like doesn't help with the catch of fish. I, I love this. Like these guys frustrated all night, finally get to catch a fish, and they're frustrated again immediately. Thanks a lot, Peter, for the help. He doesn't help with the catch of fish. He just wants to get to Jesus. And that's when things get awkward. Look at verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it. He already had fish. Sorry. (laughs) Fish laid out on it and bread. Why would I say that verse 9 makes things awkward? It's not because Jesus already had fish. John mentions this, this small little detail. It's detail of a charcoal fire. If you've traveled with us through the Gospel of John, you know that he has only mentioned a detail like this once before, back in John chapter 18 when Jesus was on trial before the priests. And Peter was outside in the courtyard, and we read John 18, 18. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves, and Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. And it's in that place that Peter denies Christ. A charcoal fire was the very place of Peter's denials. You see now why this would have been a little awkward. I I got a new car recently. It's new to me anyway. It's a used Toyota Camry. I got that because I really wanted something that screamed celebrity pastor. And uh, my kids, though, my kids do think it's like the most amazing car they've ever seen, you know, because the van, it's just the van now. It's the old van. It's mom's van. We want to ride in dad's car, which is amazing and amazingly clean because five children don't normally ride in it. So you'd think it was like a Porsche or a Camaro or something. But if I call them, like if we're going anywhere and I call them to ride in the car, like they come running, they're excited, it's still this new thing, they want to get in the car, they want to ride to go anywhere. But here's the thing, I have to park my car in the driveway, and on a couple of occasions I have caught them riding their bikes around my car in a circle. All the parents already know, they already know. And I would tell them, don't do that. Especially Talitha, my black-eyed beauty right now. Because Talitha is just recently off of training wheels. She's slightly unsteady. And so sure enough, a few days ago, I go out, and on the driver's side of my car, there's this deep gash running down the driver's side at perfect Talitha handlebar height. So... I called the kids to the car. And they came running. So excited. We're going to go somewhere in dad's car. Until they arrived. And they saw the scratch. And it all came flooding back to their minds. Because they knew what had happened. So as excited as they had been to be called to the car, all of that changed as soon as they realized they'd actually been called to the scene of their crime. Like that's what's happening for Peter. Okay, He's so excited to get to Christ, but he arrives to realize he is at the scene of his crime. And he is is soaking 
wet. He needs to warm up. He needs to get dry. So he has got to sit down at the very place of his denials with the one that he had denied. Why did Christ reveal himself in this way? The first one made it clear he does it this way on purpose. He revealed himself in this way. Why, why in this way? I think Jesus' words show us why. Look at verse 10. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore. Like by his lonesome one, maybe he feels guilty because he didn't help the other guys. But two, I'm willing to bet he wants to get away from that fire. And Jesus, out of the awkwardness on any pretense, right? You need somebody? I'll get the fish. I got him. You, know, you guys, you stay. I got this. This may take a minute. I got I to get them out. I got to count them. I know he did because look, it was a net full of large fish, 153 of them. One fish. Two fish. I'll be there in a minute. Like, sidebar, okay? Side note. Um, this number, 153 fish, I read ad nauseum at great length this past week. So many various interpretations of what this means, what this possibly symbolizes. When you encounter numbers in Scripture, there is a vein of people that love to think that they have discovered the Da Vinci Code. Like, it, it's called numerology. They love to see symbolism in in numbers all over the place. And here's the deal. Sometimes there is. But when there is symbolism in numbers, you should know two things. One, usually Scripture makes it very clear this number is symbolic. And two, whatever it's supposed to represent is very confirmable. This is not. People just throw out all sorts of guesses. And I don't even think you have to guess. I think the text tells us why it told us how many fish there were. Look at it. He pulls in a net full of large fish, 153 of them, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. Like the entire reason for telling you how many there are is to be like, this is more fish than that net should hold. It should have broken. It didn't. There were so many, but it wasn't torn. This is a miracle. And I do think that there is some meaning in this miracle. We'll get there in just a minute. But don't, for the love, try to read into every single number in the Bible, okay? The Illuminati had nothing to do with this. Keep reading. Verse 12. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish... This was now the third time that Jesus revealed to the disciples, that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Why does Jesus reveal himself to Peter in this way? In order to receive him. Come, have breakfast, join me, Eat with me. You only eat with people you're at peace with, typically. Little kids know that. They're in charge of one meal a year. And if they're not at peace with you, you don't get to come. 
you're not invited to my birthday. Like they know we're not at peace. We don't eat cake and ice cream together. Not happening. Jesus says, come and have breakfast with me. He, he reveals himself this way in order to receive Peter. Peter probably thought that he was being set up for rejection. But he wasn't. He was being set up to, to, receive, to be received. Come, have breakfast. They, they had to be thinking. It tells us they were thinking, can this really be happening? Can this really be Christ here with us, inviting us to eat with him? But none of them even dares to bring that up because they know it's him. They know this is really happening. He keeps doing things to show them that it's really him. All of a sudden now he's passing out fish and bread. They've seen this before. We've seen this before. Back in John chapter 6, Jesus passing out fish and bread. He's revealing himself to them in order to receive them. And, and he's doing it in the very place that Peter would think makes him most unworthy of reception. He's got Peter at his very place of denials. Not to reject him, but to receive him. And shades the resurrected Christ does the exact same thing for you and for I. He comes to your charcoal fire. Not to reject you, but to receive you. Not to forsake you, but to feed you and satisfy your soul with him. Hear this truth, Shades. The resurrected Christ reveals himself so that he may receive you. Not reject you. If you felt that at all last week in any shape, form, or fashion, that's why 21 is here for you. So that you will know that the resurrected Christ reveals himself not to reject you, but to receive you. Shades, do you see Jesus pouring out his grace on Peter? He's come to the place of Peter's darkest sin and embraced him. He's pouring out grace upon him, revealing himself to Peter as the resurrected Savior who receives him. And he is revealing himself to you in the exact same way. Shades, in this Word, right now, Christ is coming to your charcoal fire. To, to the place in your life of, of your darkest sin when you have rejected them, He is coming there. Not to reject you, but to receive you, to embrace you, to pour out His grace upon you. He's coming to you when you're sitting in front of that computer screen. He's coming to you when you've left the bed of someone who you are not married to. He's, he's coming to you when you're backbiting and gossiping and degrading others. He's coming to you when you've isolated yourself and you feel like you were down in the very depths of depression. He's coming to you amidst your anxiety and your fear. He's coming to you amidst any kind of eating disorder or misperception of your body. He is coming to you amidst any kind of bitterness and unforgiveness. He is coming to you wherever you are letting that charcoal fire burn. And he's coming there not to burn you, but to put out the flames and to embrace you. The resurrected Christ reveals himself so that he may receive you and pour out his grace upon you. And he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there with Peter, and he doesn't stop there with you. The resurrected Christ reveals himself for much more than just receiving. Look at verses 15 to 17. 
It says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Simon, son of John. He doesn't call him Peter. Peter was the name that he had given him. He calls him Simon, son of John, the name that Peter had before they ever met. It's like, Peter, let's start over. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. And Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? Peter said, Lord, you know everything. It's a bigger confession here. The omniscience of Christ, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Jesus asked the same question three times, a little bit of different words, but the same question, why? Because the resurrected Christ reveals himself so that he may receive and restore you. Receive and restore. This passage is often called the restoration of Peter, and that's because that's what Jesus is doing. He's restoring Peter, and he he will not leave any room for Peter to doubt that he has been fully restored. Like Jesus' questions right here, they're designed to fully unearth all of Peter's failure. You see that? And in the first question, he, Jesus doesn't just ask Peter if he loves him. He says, do you love me more than these? Like more than all the other disciples love me. Do you love me more than they do? He's asking that because that's what Peter claimed. You remember Mark 14? Peter says, they may all deny you. They may all leave you. Not me. I love you more than they do. Jesus is doing surgery on Peter's soul. And he's digging all the way down into the deepest part of the wound. Not once, not twice, but, but three times. Because he, he wants Peter to know, I'm not just forgiving you for your first denial. I'm not just forgiving you even for just your first and second. No, I'm, I am restoring. I am healing the hurt down to its depths. And Peter knows that's what's happening. He feels it, right? Verse 17, Peter was grieved. Grieved because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? Christ's words, they cut deep. Like any good surgeon, Christ cuts only to heal. He was, he was extracting the poison of denial that would have always left doubts in Peter's soul and his mind. He's extracting that all the way down to its core. Christ, Christ is making it clear that Peter was fully restored. Three denials replaced by three confessions. That's what Peter's doing. He's confessing faith in Christ. We've seen all throughout this gospel that the essence of true faith in Christ is love. I love him. I want him. I trust him. I treasure him. That's real faith, and that's Christ's question. Do you love me? Three denials replaced by three confessions. 
confessions so that there are no questions left in Peter's mind. He's been restored. And Christ wants to leave no question in your mind. Like this morning, through this word, he's called you to the place of your charcoal fire to quench your questions. He, right now, is meeting you here in what what feels like the place of your greatest disgrace. He is meeting you to pour out his grace on you by receiving you, and he's meeting you here to pour out his grace into you by restoring you. Do you love me? I love you. Come back to me. Come back to me. Come back to me. Restoring everything. Full restoration. I know that that's what he has done for Peter, and I know that's what he does for us because he doesn't just ask Peter three questions. He gives him three commissions. And just like his questions were all the same, so are his commissions. Verse 15, feed my lambs. Verse 16, tend my sheep. Verse 17, feed my sheep. Our relationship is fully restored. We have peace with God. He is filling us with power to fulfill his purpose, feeding his sheep. I know Peter's been fully restored because Christ is saying, you get to participate by my power in my commission. Feed my sheep, Peter. Great. What does that mean? What does Jesus mean when he calls Peter and calls all of us? I think that all of us have this exact same commission. I think it plays out in a million different ways. Hopefully we'll highlight that in just a second. But I think we all have the exact same commission to feed his sheep. What does that mean? If you go back through the Gospel of John, the primary place where Jesus talks about feeding is in John chapter 6, where he feeds the 5,000 with bread and fish. And he goes on this extended metaphor about how he is the bread of life. And he talks a lot about feeding, and his primary point is he tells us to feed on him so that he will be the satisfaction of our souls. Just like bread satisfies your stomach, Jesus says, I satisfy, I need to be your supreme satisfaction. You hunger for me, you want me, we need to feed. What is feeding? To feed is to need and be satisfied with Jesus. Feed is to need and be satisfied with Jesus. So Jesus says, so feed my sheep. He's saying, Peter, give me to my sheep. Help my sheep be satisfied with me. Give me to them for their satisfaction. Great. Still got to ask who are Jesus' sheep. To understand that, all we need to do is go back to John chapter 10. It's the primary place where Jesus talks about his sheep. It talks about how he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, for his people. Jesus' sheep are his people. And so, Christ's commission here of Peter is actually rather simple. Feed my sheep simply means give my people me. Satisfy them with me. Point them to me. Teach them of me. Proclaim me to my people. The very thing, Peter, that you failed to do around that first charcoal fire, confess me, that's the thing I'm calling you to do for the rest of your life. The thing that you have no power to do on your own, 
I will empower you to do it so that all may see it's truly me at work. They'll see my glory. The resurrected Christ has not just revealed himself to Peter in order to receive him, not just to restore him, but to redeem him. Redemption is a complete reversal, to bring about a complete resurrection reversal, and this is true for you. The resurrected Christ reveals himself so that he may receive, restore, and redeem your entire life. See how he reverses everything for Peter. Peter, who denied Christ, becomes one who declares Christ. Like, all you got to do is go over to the book of Acts, right? Go over to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Peter preaches the gospel at the Feast of Pentecost in Jerusalem, and 3,000 people are saved. Just go down to Acts 2 and verse 42, and you'll find him with those 3,000 believers. Doing what? Teaching them. Constantly teaching these new Christians, feeding Christ's sheep. You read through the book of Acts, he won't let anything distract him from that. You get over to Acts chapter 6, and he's helping to raise up other people to take care of the daily needs of the church. Why? So that he can devote himself to prayer and the ministry of the word. He says, I will not give up the preaching of the word. He refuses to give up preaching and teaching, feeding the sheep. A man who denied Christ to protect himself. Right? That's the thing about all of our charcoal fires, right? It's a turning in of ourselves on ourselves. Peter, Peter denied Christ to protect himself, and now he declares Christ to everyone, anyone, because the resurrected Christ revealed himself to Peter in order to redeem him and reverse everything. Shades, this is true for you. Christ has called you to the place of your charcoal fire, yes, to receive you, pour out his grace on you, yes, to restore you, pour out his grace into you, but also to redeem you, pour out his grace through you. Christ commissions you, yes, you, this resurrection reversal. It's about you. John 21, it's about you. Christ commissions you to feed his sheep. Our commission is the same as Peter's, to point others toward the only one who can satisfy their souls, Jesus Christ calls all of us out of our isolation around our charcoal fire into community to give ourselves to the community for His glory. The commission, feed my sheep, cannot be fulfilled by yourself. It can only be fulfilled when you engage with everyone else. Christ Christ has redeemed us and commissioned us with the same commission as Peter. Feed my sheep. Point others towards me as the only satisfaction of their soul. How? How are we going to do that in the same way he did it through Peter? Christ redeems your life by pouring out his grace through the very places that make you feel disqualified from this commission. That's what he did with Peter, right? Peter goes from denying to declaring in the very place. If you're thinking, how am I supposed to feed Christ's sheep? What's your charcoal fire? That is the place, not where just God is pouring out His grace on you and into you, receiving you, restoring you. That is the place through which He wants to pour out His grace through you. 
That's what he did with Peter. That's what he's done with me in my own life. I've shared with you all many times that my greatest struggle is depression, and I cannot even begin to tell you the multiplicity of ways that God has used those struggles, my struggles with depression, to connect me with people and give me opportunities to share with them and to proclaim that joy can be found in Christ. He can be the satisfaction of your soul. The irony is not lost on me, Shades Valley, that I tell you my greatest struggle is depression, and the number one truth that I preach is joy in Christ. That irony is not lost on me. I preach that because I think that joy in the glory of God is at the center of this book. I pray it is. But I think that God has providentially had me word it that way, preach it that way, because that is what pours out through my own greatest place of weakness. My depression through that, God has connected me with people, caused doors to open up for for conversation to point people to Christ. My charcoal fire has put me in a place to declare God's grace, to feed his sheep, point people towards Christ and Christ alone. So does yours. Brad preached to us not that long ago out of Romans chapter 12, and he talked about spiritual gifts, how each of us has been gifted by the Spirit of God. I think one of the key ways the Spirit of God gifts us is in our greatest area of weakness so that it will be so incredibly obvious that it is his power on display. And anywhere in Scripture that you read about spiritual gifts, they always have one aim, the building up of the body, the feeding of the sheep. You're gifted with hospitality, you do that to feed the sheep. You're gifted with teaching, you do that to feed the sheep. You're gifted with service, you do that to feed the sheep. Your charcoal fire... You let God redeem that to feed the sheep. Through the ways he's comforted me in my depression, I get to comfort others. I've watched. I've got two dear brothers in Christ here in Birmingham, Trailer Lavorne and Tal Prince, who both almost had their marriages completely fall apart. Trailers did through the use of pornography, and God redeemed it and put his marriage back together. Both of those men, through their greatest places of weakness, pour out the grace of God into the lives of others. I've seen people, their charcoal fires, alcohol, Drugs, sexuality, their charcoal fire is anger, depression, anxiety. Their, their, their charcoal fire is religiosity and self-righteousness. And God's broken that apart and uses that as the means by which they pour out his grace into the lives of others, point people to Christ and Christ alone. Our places of weakness become the very place for God to display his strength, just like he did it in Peter. It's, it's, like, it's like with my children. My children think I'm a beast, like massively strong. We watch American Ninja Warrior as a family because my kids love it, and they're always like, you should do that, Papa. I appreciate the compliment. Especially Asher, my two-year-old, who's not strong enough to do anything. He thinks I'm insanely strong because Asher can't push open a glass door. Like these glass doors that are the front doors of shades, he can't push it open on his own. And I, with one finger, <laughs> open this door and blow his mind. Like something he could never do on his own is suddenly easy when it's done in my power. His weakness becomes the very place where my power is displayed. Is that not the way Jesus has been revealing himself all throughout this text? 
like with fishermen who are weak and catch nothing, and that becomes the place where his power is put on display, or like when a net that should break under the weight of 153 fish doesn't? Is that not the very place he, he puts his power on display? Or like this man, Peter. Peter, you feel like a net that should break under the weight of my call and my commission? You're not capable. You're not. Pa- That's the point, Peter. The point's that the net can't hold 153 fish, but I can. Peter, a man who denied Christ, becomes the primary one throughout the first half of Acts, declaring Christ. His weakness became the place that Christ power was displayed. Don't let it be lost on you that the man who denied Christ three times, the first time he preaches, 3,000 get saved. Very place of his weakness becomes the place of displaying God's power. That was true for Peter. It's true for you. Where is it true for you, Shades? Your charcoal fire, where is it? Like, where is is the place that the place of disgrace that makes you feel like Christ cannot possibly use you that is the place where he can powerfully show the world his redeeming power in you and through you that that whatever that is for you that is the very wound through which he can pour out his grace to the world our god is a god who pours out grace through wounds And he's a God who pours out grace through you. Don't believe it. That's why the Gospel of John has a chapter 21. So that through Peter's eyes, you and I might see the resurrected Christ revealed as the one who receives, restores, and redeems our entire lives for his glory and the good of his church. Amen and amen.